All right, well, let's jump in. We're going to be in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 4. So turn in your Bibles there. And I hope so far the message of uh, the book of Hebrews has been clear. The message is Jesus is greater than X or anything, whatever you want to put there. He's greater than anything, so cling to him tightly. Um, Follow him. Don't reject the message of the gospel. And uh, this has been communicated to us by showing us how great Jesus is, but also... He's been giving us a lot of warnings, hasn't he? He's, the last two chapters really have been shifting from talking about Jesus is greater than this to you guys better pay attention. You better, you better clean closely. Today we're going to be jumping back into comparing, showing how great Jesus is. And as I gave away earlier, we're going to be seeing how Jesus is greater than the priesthood. We're gonna, the, 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 the theme of priests and high priests is going to be shown all throughout this book. Um, and it's, it's introduced in part here. Um, and in these few verses, it's going to focus on Jesus' relationship with you. Um, the last two chapters have been heavily focused on our responsibility. What we are, we, how should we, we should respond to the gospel. Um, if just because you're, you're along for the ride doesn't mean you bought into the message. We've been mentioning that a couple times in the past few weeks. Um, and there's been a lot of warnings, a lot of serious instructions. Here's some of the commands in chapters 3 and 4. You don't have to write these down. This is just a review. Um, hold fast to your confidence and your boasting and your hope in chapter 3. Don't harden your hearts. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Exhort one another every day. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Let us strive to enter that rest. This this hold fast, strive, take care, exhort, fear, all these really heavy, serious instructions, one right on top of each other that maybe by the end of chapter four makes you feel a little bit overwhelmed. Like, wow, okay, this is, this is a lot. And as I look over these instructions, it kind of reminds me of what it might feel like to, how many of you have or want to skydive someday? That sounds exciting to you. Wow, more, more, more hands than, than I anticipate. How many of you, not, not, not a chance. I would never get in a plane to go skydiving. Yeah, yeah my hand's up. <laughs> so imagine for a moment that you're up in a plane, you're going skydiving, okay? And you are standing, this is your first time, and the instructor is there. And, and over the sound of the, the, the plane engine, he's yelling all of these reminders, all of these instructions to you, like how serious the situation is, how important it is to follow these instructions. You need to pull this cord. I don't know what instructions uh, they give, and I never will because I'll never go skydiving. But those serious instructions of pull this cord, don't do this, do this, and the weight of the situation and the amount of instructions that he's going over. Can you kind of sense just the feeling of... Ah, this is overwhelming. Right? This, the seriousness. I, what, what, what if I forget something? What if I don't follow the instructions to a T? Yeah, Lena. Is that skydive for his 50th birthday? And when you get down, you just think it's a composure. Really? That's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if I was in the situation and his jump pull cord, I would I'd be so nervous I'd probably forget that too. Like jumping what? I can't remember. 
So just sense that, the situ- that overwhelming situation, just instruction after instruction. Oh man, what if I forget something? That's kind of how I feel reading these commands. Oh man, this is so much. You know, fear, hold fast, don't harden your heart, um, strive, work. All these things feel really overwhelming. And when I consider how serious the situation is, when, he's, when he holds forth Jesus and says, you better be sure that you have embraced him. All I see is my own inability, my lack of courage, and lack of confidence, as if I were about to jump out of an airplane. And, and if I were in that situation, an airplane, I'd be, probably be saying, don't throw me out of this plane alone. Okay, I don't know what I'm doing. I need someone to cling on to. Right? I need an instructor. If you, if you send someone out the plane with me, then maybe I feel a little bit better about the situation. And as I read these commands, I feel the same thing. I don't know what I'm doing. I need grace. I need strength. I need someone to cling on to. And we find our answer in these verses that Jesus is our great high priest. Let's read verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4. And remember, this is right after he's been saying things like fear, strive to enter that rest. And then verse 14 begins by saying, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, these verses are saying you're not jumping out of the plane alone. You're clinging to Jesus because he's jumping with you. He's your great high priest. So really, when we read in verse 14, let us hold fast our confession, in a way it means let us hold fast to Jesus. What do these verses say about us? Well, these verses say two things about us. Number one, it highlights our weakness. He sympathizes with our weaknesses, so we're weak. And we can go to him in time of need. So we're weak and we're needy. How do you experience uh, weakness? How, what are your moments of need right now? Just think about your own life. Just look inwardly. Do these commands of hold fast and strive and fear make you say to yourself, I can't. I'm too weak. I'm too needy. My, my life is, is, is just not in a good place right now. This is what these verses draw our attention to, that we really are incapable, that we really um, aren't strong enough to follow the commands that, that we've been given. I mean, just think about the struggles and temptations that we experience. Even consider the, the depression and anxiety rates among teenagers increasing year after year. Um, the advent of smartphone and social media, amplifying those rates even more as, as teens are constantly bombarded with realistic standards of beauty or achievement or success. and Maybe you're drowning in that today. Or the, maybe it's the decisions and actions of other people or the circumstances of life that make you feel like you have no control and you feel vulnerable, you feel weak, you feel like you're in a time of need. Maybe you have uh, private temptations that you're struggling with. You're struggling to give in to those, your desires. Or you're struggling to believe the lies that other people are telling you. 
When these things are filling your life, right, it's really hard to hear commands like strive, hold fast, because you're barely hanging on, right? It's just, you feel weak, you feel needy. And the worst part is, you feel like maybe you don't, no one understands that weakness or that neediness that you're going through. No one can help, right? I feel alone, I feel helpless. And it's that with this backdrop, we read the opening words of verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And we see that the fact that Jesus is our great high priest. And the point of this passage is to help us see that that fact that Jesus is our high priest should change everything. But in order to understand this passage, we need to consider what the priesthood is all about. Why it's really important that he points to Jesus as our high priest. Think back on the Old Testament. The priests were, the priesthood was instituted after uh, Israel was was delivered from Egypt. And who's the first priest? Anyone know? First high priest. Yeah, that's right. I'm named named after him, I guess. Um, Yeah, Aaron was the first high priest, the brother of Moses. And he was from the tribe of Levi. And the Levitical tribe was the tribe where the priests would come from. And the priesthood was set up to serve in a couple of ways. First of all, they, were, they represented the people to God. They were the ones who brought the people before the Lord. To, to pray for the people before the Lord. Okay, um, Flip over uh, in your Bibles to... Exodus, let me see, 28. Exodus 28. This is, this is in, in the passage of Scripture where the priesthood is established. And chapter 28 is talking about the different things that the priests wear. Okay, the high priest wears. And, uh, and look in Hebrews chapter, or sorry, Genesis, or sorry, again, Exodus. There we go. Exodus chapter 28, uh, verse 9. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron, remember, he's the first high priest, He shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Skip down to verse 29. This is talking about the the, the breast piece that they would wear. It's a big gold square with the different jewels on it. Maybe you've seen those in, in Sunday school lessons. And each one of those jewels represented a tribe of Israel. Verse 29 says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breast piece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place, to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And it says later on, Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. What was this signifying? That every time the high priest would go into the most holy place, he is bearing the names of the people on his shoulders and on his heart. And he's bringing that before the Lord. These high priests represented the people to God. They, they, they acted on behalf of the people. But also they made sacrifices for the sins of the people. 
The most important job of the high priest was on the Day of Atonement. What's the Day of Atonement? If you were to read, it and read about it in the Old Testament, you find out the Day of Atonement was a special day once a year. It only happened once a year. And the high priest would sacrifice, uh, make a sacrifice for his own sins, and then he'd make a sacrifice for the, the people. And he would go into the most holy place after going through the purification, and he'd bring the blood of the sacrifice past the curtain, right? So there's the temple or the tabernacle, and it's divided by a big curtain, and the Ark of the Covenant is behind that curtain in the Holy of Holies, and he would bring blood from the sacrifice through the veil to the Ark of the Covenant, and he would sprinkle blood on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. All right? Does anyone know what the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called? (laughs) It was a lid. It had a fancy name. Anyone know? It was a seat. That's in it. Something seat. The blank seat. I think I heard it. The mercy seat. The mercy seat. So you were supposed to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for the sins of the people. And this was an act of, here's a fancy word, propitiation. Have you heard that word before? Propitiation. This was meant to appease the wrath of God through the blood of a spotless sacrifice. This is what the high priest would do once a year. Is he would do the act of propitiation by bringing this blood of a spotless sacrifice through the veil into the Holy of Holiness and sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. But these priests were imperfect. They sinned too, right? So they had to make sacrifices of their own. But Jesus comes in Hebrews as it says, the great high priest who has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. And the book of Hebrews actually describes how Jesus was the perfect high priest. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, which we've already looked at in past lessons, it says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So in Hebrew, when he hears that word propitiation, what comes to his mind? This, right? So the high priest, Jesus is our great high priest, and just like the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle that blood, Hebrews 2.17 says Jesus did something like that too. He made propitiation for the sins of the people. I want you to flip ahead to Hebrews chapter 9. Because here we're going to see it laid out as clear as day, the connection between what the high priests did on the Day of Atonement and what Jesus did on the cross. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the the bread of presence. It was called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. And above these were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the what? Mercy seat. And of these things we cannot speak now in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priest would go regularly into the first section, performing the ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. 
By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Look at verse 11. This is so cool. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, through whom the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So we see this direct comparison between the Day of Atonement and what Jesus did on the cross, that he once for all brought blood into the holy places and he sprinkled that blood and he purified us and redeemed us once and for all. He is our great high priest. And so back in our passage, Hebrews chapter 4, when it says, since we have a high priest, Jesus, Son of God, who has passed into the heavens, I want you to think of Jesus passing into the Holy of Holies. He's completed it and he's passed into the heavens. He's completed and accomplished his work. He's the perfect intermediary. He represents us. And he's the perfect high priest because he offers the perfect sacrifice, his own blood. And as we look at these verses, we see such a comforting and assuring words to us in our weakness and neediness. And here's the first thing as we look at how Jesus is greater than the priests. First of all, because Jesus is our great high priest, Jesus gets you. Jesus gets you. Verse 15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So in this verse, we we learn who Jesus is by learning who he is not. He is not unsympathetic. So in other words, he's very sympathetic to you. What does this mean? What does sympathy mean? Well, you can think of it in terms of three ways, and I want you to guess or tell me which one of these three ways you think is referring to Jesus here. First of all, you can think of sympathy in terms of acknowledging what someone is feeling. Okay, so this would be like, oh man, that stinks. I'm sorry. I acknowledge what you're going through. That stinks, right? Or imagining what someone must be feeling. That's, that might be another form of sympathy. Oh, I feel so bad for you. I can only imagine the pain you're experiencing. Or sympathy could be sharing what someone is feeling. So this is more of a knowledge of what you're feeling and experiencing, often because of a shared experience. Right? So, man, I know what you're going through because I went through the same thing. Okay? So acknowledging, imagining, and experiencing. Which one do you think is in reference to Jesus here? When it says he can sympathize with us, is it acknowledging our feelings, imagining our feelings, or experiencing our feelings? Which one? Number three, yeah. The right answer is always the last one, just, just, just so you know. Um, yeah, it's, it's the idea that he knows. He's not just sitting there saying, oh man, I, I, 
I, I, I can only imagine what you're going through right now. And your sorrow, your loneliness, whatever the case may be. He's not saying, oh man, I acknowledge your pain. Or, oh, I can only imagine what you're going through. No, he knows what you're going through. Because he became like his brethren in every respect. Jesus doesn't imagine how you're feeling right now. He knows how you're feeling. Because he has shared in our human experience. What exactly is he sympathizing with? Well, he sympathizes with our weakness. And he sympathizes with our temptation. He says he was intem- he's tempted in every way, like as we are, yet without sin. So let's look at the genuineness of his temptation. When he was here on this earth, what does it mean that he was tempted in every way, yet without sin? This is comprehensive. It's not he was tempted in some ways, or most ways, but in every way. Jesus, when Jesus became a human, he was tempted in the same way that humans are. And, and remember back to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So he became 100% human. And so therefore his temptation is real human temptation. There was nothing about his temptation that was fake. He was fully human and he was tempted in every way. Do you think Jesus knew the feeling of loneliness? Do you think Jesus knew the feelings of sorrow? Hunger? Grief? Frustration? Do you think Jesus had the opportunity to follow his feelings instead of the Father's will? Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, If it be possible, Lord, make this cup pass from me. But not as I will, but as you will. Think about the temptation in the wilderness with the devil, Matthew 4. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. He was tempted in every respect just as you are. But there's also an important exception to how he was tempted, yet without sin. Okay? And, and for a while, when I read that phrase, it kind of took the air out of that for me. I'm like, oh, okay. He doesn't really understand me. You ever felt that way? Like, I would, he would get me more if he had a sin nature like me. Maybe, that, maybe he'd be able to sympathize a lot more if he knew what it's like to struggle with my own sinful flesh. Because it's true, Jesus did, not have, Jesus did not have a sin nature. He never sinned, and I would argue he, he could never sin. Because he was 100% man, but he was still 100% God. Does this lose comfort for you? Because Jesus never sinned, does that limit his ability to sympathize with you? Well, let's ask this question. Why is it incredibly important that Jesus was tempted without sin? Why is that really important that he, was, he never sinned in these temptations? Why is it the last thing we would want for Jesus to actually sin in temptation? Tony. That's right. So what, what is he seeking? He, he, he was made perfect through what he suffered. We saw that. And that means he became the perfect sacrifice for us. So there's that aspect that it's because he was to be not just a sympathizer with us, but the sacrifice. And he couldn't be the sacrifice if he had given into sin. So there's that. There's another aspect why this is really, really incredible. In fact, I think the fact that he didn't sin 
makes him even more sympathetic for us. Let me tell you why. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay? How much ability do you think Jesus had? More than you? Probably. (laughs) Okay. How much temptation do you think Jesus was able to withstand? More than me? Yeah. What is this saying? Jesus experienced a, a stronger force of temptation. He experienced the full brunt of temptation due to the fact that he was, he was um, without sin. He never gave in. He never gave up. You know, when you give in to temptation, then that's the stopping point for you. Jesus kept on enduring. And he didn't do it by like just, you know, not to play the, not to make this sound trivial, but using the, the God card. Well, good try tempting me. I can't sin, so good luck. No, he, he resisted temptation through the power of the word and the power of the spirit, just like we're called to do. He didn't use his deity. I am God. I can't get tempted. He knew sorrow. He knew hunger. He knew pain. All the things that human experience, and he resisted temptations the same way that we are called to resist temptation. Because Jesus is our sympathetic high priest, he knows exactly what you're going through. He gets you. And he knows fully what it's like to be a weak human being experiencing temptation. God put himself in a position to experience that alongside of you. And while he doesn't share in your sin, he truly and fully shares in your weakness and sympathizes with you. In other words, no one gets you like Jesus does. No one's closer to you in your loneliness, weakness, and sorrow than Jesus is. You know what it's like to be uncomfortable around someone who is suffering? You know what I mean? Like someone's going through a tough time and you, you don't know what to say or do. Um, so maybe you stay a little distant because you're just uncomfortable around that. It's not that you don't care. You do. But it's just you don't feel natural. You don't feel comfortable being close to someone who's going through incredible pain and sorrow and suffering. Because it's just, I don't know. I, I don't know what to say. You know what, I'm, you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been there before? Or maybe you've been on the other side. You've been going through suffering. And you can sense the nervousness and the distance of the people around you. Because they just, I don't know, what do I say? What do I do? That's not Jesus. Jesus isn't sitting there being like, oh man, I just, he's just going through so much. She's just experiencing so much. Ah, I just don't like that. No, when he sees his suffering children, the Bible says he's drawn to them. He experienced temptation and then some. So when he sees you suffering and you struggling, he's near to you. He says, he looks at you and says, I get you. I understand you. And what should we do in response to this? Well, the passage tells us. Because we have this high priest who can sympathize with us, hold fast to our confession. Cling to who Jesus is. Don't let go. Because why would you want to? Why would you want to let go of a Jesus like this who understands you and sympathizes with you? So Jesus gets you. And maybe even more importantly, Jesus helps you. 
Because Jesus perfectly atoned for our sins on the cross, tearing the veil in the temple from top to bottom, we can boldly and confidently go before the throne of God. Verse uh, Chapter 4, verse 16, Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's passed through the heavens. He has accomplished the task. He has atoned for our sins once and for all. And we'll come back later on this role of his per- him being the perfect sacrifice. But for now, we'll keep it simple, that Jesus was successful in his mission so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. And it's here I want you to remember what we said earlier about the role of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. So he entered the most holy place with the blood of the sacrifice and he sprinkled it on the what? The mercy seat. All right? The, the seat of mercy. Okay? So he, on the seat of mercy, this is the act of propitiation. Right? And now Jesus has come as the great high priest and he sacrificed himself and he's entered once and for all into the holy place, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood and thus securing an eternal redemption. And now, what are we called to do? Draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know what I think is going on here in this verse? When you think of propitiation, his role of a high priest, you know what I think the author is doing here? He's making a direct connection between the mercy seat and the throne of grace. The seat of mercy, the throne of grace. Think about the seat of mercy. Who can approach it? Only the high priest can approach the mercy seat. How often can he approach the mercy seat? Once a year. But Jesus is our great high priest who passed in the most holy place with his own blood and secured eternal redemption. And so therefore, since we have this great high priest, let's come boldly to the throne of grace. Who can approach this throne? I can. You can. Not just the high priest. Not just someone in the Levitical uh, family. Me. You. And how often can I approach this throne of grace? It tells us, in time of need. When do you need it? When do you need grace? When do you need strength? When do you need mercy? Then approach his throne boldly. What an incredible comparison Jesus is our great high priest. And just like that blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, he sprinkled his own blood and secured eternal redemption for us so that that veil was torn and now the way into the throne of grace is open. And in your time of weakness, you have access to God. You have his mercy on call. In prayer, you can run to him boldly on the basis of his finished work for you. Because of Jesus, you have full assurance, you have forgiveness, you have redemption, which allows us not to shrink back. Imagine how nervous the high priest must have been entering that holy place. Did I I purify myself correctly? Did I forget about something? Am I going to be struck dead by the holiness of God? No, it says, draw to the throne of grace boldly, confidently, because Jesus already passed through the veil and sprinkled his own blood. And redemption is permanently sealed by the blood of Christ. So yeah, we've been given a lot of commands in the last previous chapters. Hold fast, don't harden your heart, take care, strive, fear. 
But then he points our attention to this great high priest who in our weakness, in our neediness, he gets you, he sympathizes with you, and then he clears the way for you to have direct access to God. And so, yes, hold fast, cling to him. Why, not, why wouldn't you? Jesus is greater than anything. Jesus is the perfect and great high priest. And so because he gets you, because he can sympathize with you, hold fast to Jesus. Don't give him up. Don't, don't, don't throw him to the side. No one understands you more than him. No one sympathizes with you more than him. No one gets you more than he does. And he still gets you, even though he's in heaven on the right hand of the Father. He still is sympathizing with you. Because he gets you, hold fast to him. And because he can help you, draw near to him. Why would you not? What's your time of need? What's your weakness? Do you know you have direct access to unlimited grace and mercy by the blood of Jesus Christ? So go boldly to him in prayer. Jesus understands you. Jesus sympathizes with you. He shares in your suffering. He is not distant. We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Sometimes we view God that way, don't we? God can't be touched with the feeling of my infirmities. He's God. He's distant. He's up in heaven. He's looking down at me, wondering when I'm going to get my act together. No, that's not how God is viewing you. Jesus has drawn near to you. He has experienced your suffering. He has been, he's been victorious in your suffering because he's without sin. And he sympathizes with the pain, with the loneliness that you are experiencing this morning. And he understands you and he says, so cling to me. And when you have someone like that, jumping out of that airplane window is a little easier. Because you have a competent and a faithful high priest who's going with you. Who's clean, who you are clinging to. And all of a sudden, the source of your confidence is not, did I follow all the rules? Did I remember everything that I'm supposed to remember? No, your confidence is the one that you are holding on to for dear life. And that's who Jesus is, because he is your great high priest. In chapter 5, he's going to talk more about how Jesus is our high priest. And then in chapter 6, there's more warnings. There's more like, Take this seriously. But I love how even in these serious warnings, he includes this snippet to remind us of where our confidence lies and how faithful and how sympathetic and loving Jesus is. So don't forget that. Jesus is greater than anything. And you can cling to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being a faithful high priest. Lord, we acknowledge our weaknesses. We acknowledge our failings. Lord, I pray that we would remember what you've done for us, that you understand, that you get us, and you help us. What an incredible Savior you are, not just paying for our sins, but beyond that, giving us grace and mercy and access whenever we need it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.